Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Cup Reviews, brought to you by Cup of Hemlock Theater. I am your host and marketing manager here at Cup of Hemlock, Mackenzie, and I'm really excited because today we are branching out from the realms of Stratford into some uh, other companies and some more modern uh, works. So uh, to do that, our first production we have chosen to, to spearhead this is the Theater Smith and Gilmore 2013 production of As I Lay Dying, which is based off William Faulkner's epic novel of the same name. Uh, and to go about this review with me, uh, it is, we have a wonderful OG panel, as we are now dubbed. Uh, <laughs> so first up, we have our production manager, Edmund Clark. Ed, how are you? I'm doing well. Yourself, Mac? I'm doing well. Can't really complain. I'm excited to talk all about this epic journey of a, of a play. Oh yeah, lots to lots to get into today. <laughs> right? What's in your cup today? So I have coffee once again. Mm -hmm. Last night was a late night, so if you see some bags under my eyes or <laughs> eyes, it's not because I'm not interested. I'm just still waking up. So you mean Ed? You you like didn't go to the makeup tree that we had set up for you to get touched up before? Actually, I do have some makeup in my closet that I'm preparing for the Man of Destiny recording this Ooh. Saturday. Sunday. Sunday. Which by the time you're watching this at home will be last Sunday. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we're in the future. <laughs> no, we're in the past. It's practically time travel. That's <laughs> true. true. But there we go. So coffee for you. Wonderful. Next we have our general assistant, the lady who keeps us all on track here at Cup of Hemlock. Uh, Miss Jillian Robinson. Hello, Jill. Hello, Mac. Thanks for having me again. Thank you for coming on again. What's in your cup and what is your ensemble today? My ensemble today, right. So I have some overalls, short overalls, like they're shorts because it's the summer and it's really hot where I am right now. So uh, I wanted to go with the, the suspender white shirt look that's yes. on par with today's production. Um, my earrings, it's a bit of a stretch, but uh, they kind of remind me of the fire scene that we have. Ah, Spoiler alert. Um, they're red and multifaceted. So um, we'll dig into all the goodiness of that. Mm -hmm. Then my cup, again, is a bit of a stretch, but my cup is on theme. My drink is just the peppermint tea. Um, my tummy was being kind of weird. So peppermint tea is the drink. But the cup um, <laughs> is actually a retirement cup that either I can't remember if it's my dad's or my mom's. But um it's black and white. So again, a lot of color pattern we're seeing in, in costume and the very black and white minimalist uh, staging that's present in this piece. But also there's little elements on it. Like it's a house that says home. The little inscription on the lip says the bonds we have are everlasting. There's a lot of irony in this mug. And there's a little <laughs> message over top here. I mean, it, it is a retirement message, so we'll, we'll splice some of it away. But uh, wishing you happiness as you enjoy the important things in life, dot, 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 family, friends, and the comfort of home. Oh. So I'm going to be sipping on the irony throughout this entire <laughs> panel. Nice. Very good. Very good. Ryan, our wonderful literary manager, Ryan Brockovich, is joining us once again. This is actually his suggestion of a production for us to do, yes. so 
Well done, Ryan. Uh, Ryan, what is your ensemble and what is in your cup? Yeah, so I keep trying to up the A game for the ensemble because Jill keeps making the rest of us look bad <laughs> because she's always so on top of it. Um, so I'm wearing plaid because it's the closest, like it has nothing to do with the costumes of this production, but it is like farm dustful yes. chic, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so that that's the extent of effort I put into my ensemble. Uh, for my cup, well, I'm just drinking regular orange pico tea as per usual, but I have this custom printed Sad Ibsen Theater mug, which mm. is the company that I started back in 2014, around the same time that I saw this production. It was under a different title, Take Me Back to Jefferson, when it was at Factory ah. Theater in 2014. But because this production, as well as other things I was seeing and experiencing at the time, might have been germinating my head, while I was inspired to start my own company, I felt it was appropriate to dig this up to be sipping I on agree. while talking about this and revisiting this so many years later. I nice. love it. I love it. And uh, I'm drinking water once again from my silver tankard. And in honor of the overalls and white shirt costume design, yeah. I have also broken out my suspenders for this. You brought your A game too, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I tried. I tried. But uh, so, as I said, this is based off an epic novel that. I have not read. I don't think Jill or Ed have read. Uh, but Ryan, as our literary manager, of why course, don't you give us the literary manager a... is the one who's read it? <laughs> <laughs> why don't you give us the brief plot rundown of what the heck this is? Because unlike your Shakespeare plays, which are common knowledge of kind of what these plays are, unless they're like really obscure and like King John, like for the most part, people knew what the plays were about without a plot summary. But like for this one, it may be good to kind of give us a rundown. So. Ryan, give us a rundown of what is the plot of As I Lay Dying. Okay, yeah, so this is uh, it's a novel written in the 1930s by William Faulkner, and it is set around this very toxic family called the Bundrens, and at the very early in the beginning of the novel, the matriarch of the family, Addie, has passed away, and the patriarch, Ants, wants to respect her last wishes to be buried in her original hometown of Jefferson, Mississippi. And so he gets the whole family together in this wagon, brings to her unbalmed corpse, that becomes important later, un unembalmed, sorry, <laughs> yes, a corpse, uh, puts it in a coffin made by uh, the eldest son, Cash, put it on the wagon and they all go on this adventure, very dangerous journey that takes way longer than expected. But eventually they arrive in Jefferson after a lot of trials and tribulations to complete their Nine goal. days later. Nine days later. And, you know, I don't know if you know anything about embalming, but that corpse starts to stink after a while. <laughs> As does Cash's leg, which breaks along the journey. And uh, another son, Darl, is slowly, his mind is deteriorating under the weight of everything that's going on. Uh, the daughter, Dewey Dell, is pregnant, and her baby daddy, Leif, gave her $10 so she could seek out an abortion in Jefferson at a pharmacy, which does not go well. And then there's also the youngest son, Vardaman, who's seven and very much has the mind of a seven-year-old, which in the book, all of these characters, as well as the various people that they meet on their journey, have chapters that they narrate. It's, you know, for a more kind of contemporary reference think game of thrones how all the characters have their own chapters but unlike game of thrones which is a third person narrator focalized through the perspectives of each of the characters like what they see but still not them speaking this is very much a stream of consciousness 
journey kind of into each of their minds and the way they perceive the worlds and talk about their own experiences. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting book to read. It really kind of just drops you in the middle of these people's lives. It doesn't hold your hand through it. It's that's kind of what Faulkner was known best for his other best known novel, the sound and the fury definitely did yeah. that in a kind of different, but similar way. I, I would recommend it. Um, I have it right here. Um, yeah, but I would, that's kind of the rundown on the book, but we're here to talk about this production. So, so in that case, why don't we dive right in with which character do we feel is best performed? Jill, would you like to start this one? I would love to start this one. So me, um, I definitely, I think hands down, even though there wasn't really a weak character in my mind per se, um, Benjamin Muir as Jewel just like stole the show for me. Um, and I think it was because uh, it actually wasn't until the, the end banana scene with all of the siblings that I was able to really like sink into um, how all of these characters sort of like represent different archetypes throughout the entire piece. And I think that last like moment of them eating the bananas, like you really got to see everyone um, and their role kind of sussed out in that one moment. Um, and so kind of just taking that snapshot and thinking back into them individually, I think like Benjamin Muir as Jewel, like he just had like a perfect package of a character and like his arc was fantastic. His physicality um, and connection to Lecoq's uh, styles throughout was like, absolutely stunning um up until like his gesture and him also uh, as Peabody like that was the completely opposite to me like they both were kind of hard cutting edged characters but like very different gestures very different even like levels playing um and he he made them very very different um which I've said a bunch of times but um yeah he just really really stood out and took the took the cake um almost like a, a level above some of the other actors in some moments too. And, and I think part of that is because the energy he had to have for both of those characters that he was playing, uh, they kind of would be standout-ish anyways. But I just, I know that like that performance would be completely exhausting for an actor too, especially that one scene where he's like playing both himself, Jewel and the horse. Um, I just, yeah, props props to Benjamin Muir. He, he's my choice. Mm-hmm. Love it. Um, wonderful. Ed, who is your choice for best performed? I, I want to say before I get into it, I wish I had seen this in person. I wish Mm -hmm. I had been in the production to see it. Uh, I, I would say that the one I favored more was Addie Bundren. Mm -hmm. And I just think that her scene the placement of her scene just came out of very just came as a relief there was a lot going on throughout the performance and then that having that scene of relaxation to just come on the stage and everything is pretty fairly still like her character is very still and she's definitely speaking from an abstract space since she's dead spoiler alert (laughs) it's in the title (laughs) (laughs) she's the one that's lying dead Uh, yeah, I would say that, that Addie Bundren, but I wasn't, for the most part, for the, for, for most of the performance, I wasn't really, I wasn't really gleaning from it, any of the 
archetypes or wasn't showing for me any of the archetypes. And I, I understand that they are very big movement based. Uh, it's a big movement based theater company and the, the uh, production was heavily movement based. But I think there was too much movement. So which distracted from the performance and then everyone sounded very similar. The accents were jarring for me. I mean, I'm from I'm from the South. I'm from Georgia. So hearing the accents, it was just kind of this is this is way too incoherent for me, especially from an audio like from the like online production. That's why I'm saying I wish I had seen it in person. I probably would have gotten a lot more out of it. But that's yeah, I would say that Addie Bundren is my I think is the best performed. Mm-hmm. And I it think is. it's because of the yeah. circumstances and the scenes and the placement, mainly the, the direction of that scene that brings me to that answer. <laughs> Fair. I will say we've been spoiled by Stratford's pro shots for the past yeah. several weeks. So we've been reviewing content while this is more of an archival footage yeah. Yeah. of a production, which is still very nice of them to share. But yes, the sound and video quality were not up to the snuff that we become accustomed <laughs> for sure for sure i don't think that is i mean uh, like i said i don't think that's that's the biggest issue for me but it's i think it's definitely a factor fair fair ryan yeah well i have to respectfully respectfully disagree ed that i kind of a moron uh jill's side <laughs> of i don't think there was a weak link in the in the cast but i was very happy with all the performers and that said, it was very hard to pick just one, so I am going to give it a tie for my first pick. And that's both of our Gilmores. Nina Gilmore as Dewey Dell and Dean Gilmore as Ants. Because I just thought the two of them certainly were the ones who just pop and stand out from the crowd in every scene they're in. Which, there's obvious reasons for that. Dean Gilmore being just so much older than most of the cast. He just such a visually striking presence, like the motions in his face, even if we couldn't always get like a great close-up in this video, like you can see it from a mile away, just everything he's doing with his eyes and the posture and the demeanor, like he, you know, is really this force to be reckoned with, not not necessarily a likable force, but that's I think a testament to his performance in this, certainly. And and like I think kudos to him being like one of the co-creators and spearheaders of this project to give himself the most unlikable role. <laughs> like maybe that there's something enjoyable in being having that showy part, but I, I thought he kind of really nailed it. And I was very happy with what he brought to this really just kind of gross character for lack of a better word. <laughs> so yeah, I enjoyed that. And then yeah, Nina Gilmore as Dewey Dell, again, had that same way of just every scene she was in, like, all attention goes to her. She really kind of, yeah, just probably aside from her mother, who's kind of dead and non-speaking for most of the time, you know, she's the only one, the only female presence on the stage. Uh, She kind of is often, like, very quiet and understated, like, in the background of various brother scenes, but she's kind of always there, always observing, and then I just kind of found the way she embodied her whole seeking the abortion plotline really just is kind of heartbreaking. And she brought that pathos to it that sort of culminated in that banana scene at the end where she's the one sitting there doling out the fruit to her brothers. So yeah, hats off to both of them. Couldn't pick a favorite between them. Fair, fair enough. 
Uh, I will say for me, my shout out has to go to Daniel Roberts, <laughs> who was so versatile. Where the, the, all these act, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, his main character was Var, uh, 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 Vardaman, but he also played all of these various townsfolk. But what I liked about him was just how versatile he could jump between these characters and make them all distinct. Like, I we'll, we'll get more to this when, when we get into, when we get into the weakest part of the production. But telling some of these characters apart was a real challenge and like job to do so the fact that you could come on and go okay so he's being this per like his main person is this seven-year-old but he's also playing various townspeople and they're all they all have their own distinct walk and voice like i thought that was a really well done thing for him to do uh and it made it made following his track of the show the easiest out of all the brothers to follow because all the other brothers look the same they talk the same so it was like don't really know who's who here. I mean, like, at least I know one of them has a broken leg. So that kind of gives me some idea of who he is. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say Daniel Roberts gets my shout out for um, being distinctive enough to stand out from, from, from the crowd of men that are on the stage. Mm-hmm. And all the brothers. So I think a lot of that was communicated just in his voice that he was putting yeah. on. Especially as Vardaman, like this childish affect that yes. really, even if like there's a, not as much visual diversity among the brothers like you could always tell when that character was speaking exactly <laughs> certainly mm-hmm. which is key especially when you have them all dressed the same which we'll get into more when i get into other things about the production <laughs> uh ryan why don't you kick us off with this next question though what was your favorite production or design element because you saw this one live so you'll have a yeah. better understanding of what looked good on stage which is maybe look which maybe looks a little bit different from yeah Certainly different, but I will say that the things that, like, it's the same answer that I would have had if you asked me back in 2014 what stood out production-wise, that's just the stage pictures that are created in this, and I think that might feel like a cop-out answer, but it is part of what this company does best, is creating the striking visual imagery. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, the diving into the water scene is just kind of amazing, and the fire scene is kind of similar and like it's just so simple how they create these things it's not elaborate effects it's really just light like, sound acting kind of the confluence of those together create all of these beautiful images like with the water just like the swimming motions paired with the thick blue light and the classical music in the background that was creating the division between the underwater and the overwater and then when we get the spotlight in the scene that Ed was talking about on Addy, in the middle of the water wall, everyone's still swimming yeah. slow motion in the background. It's just, it's so, yeah, this part of Theater Smith Gilmore's mandate is really kind of touching the audience's imagination. And I think so many of these scenes do it. Uh, even just like the wagon is such like a simple setup. It's maybe like less strikingly beautiful as like the water and the fire scenes are. But just, I think the way that it kept turning with like 90 degree increments each time we saw it, that it started with, uh, yeah, ants facing forward as the driver and everyone sitting behind him. And then we got the profile view and then we got the back view at the end. Like, it's just very simple with very little. The coffin, I think was a great kind of like, just a simple board of wood that they turn sometimes horizontally, sometimes vertically. And one kind of last stage picture moment that I do want to highlight is the woman with the spade, (laughs) which like it's such a kind of, it feels out of place when it first starts because when they arrive in Jefferson and they're looking for someone to lend them a spade, suddenly they stop their wagon and there's just this like 
old-timey song playing as the light kind of shifts and they turn their perspective and it's just like this why is this moment so beautiful what's even happening here and then ants goes and borrows the spade and then it kind of pays off in the end which i having read the book knew what was coming but that woman becomes the new mrs bundren who immediately takes over addie's role after she's buried and presumably forgotten at least by ants so just like the way that they took these things that seem innocuous at the moment but found ways to really like poetically highlight them it's just really well so like did they just did i think a great job at evoking these images my answer is similar but i had the movement yeah even though i do agree that at times there was a little bit too much movement i would say for the most part the movement was really well done considering there was no set for them to work with so you basically had to depend on movement to tell the story like in a visual way and so i think a lot of times there was some great specificity of movement like with the horse bucking scene that we got with jewel at the beginning like just the way he moved his body was really impressive or even like the simple things like getting in and out of the wagon like people underestimate how difficult to mine something as simple as that to make it all uniform and like you gotta hit this mark here if you're gonna be hopping in and out to make sure like your knees all come out the same way to make sure it doesn't look like we're just walking through a set piece like that is more difficult than what people will actually ever give that credit for so the fact that all these guys were jumping in and out of this wagon uniformly was great and then like as uh, you know like the big highlights were obviously the underwater and the fire scene with the way they did like the way they varied the tempo of the movements to illustrate certain moments like there was the one moment where it's um the, the daughter's just being held back by the father as she's screaming into the red light like that image just stuck with me because that was such a powerful shot that you could easily picture the, the barn burning and she's standing inside screaming for her for jewel um so i definitely say the movement was really strong like like uh, that could that could have failed really quickly and then you're stuck for two hours watching really bad movement and trust me i've sat through those performances and they're like teeth pullingly bad like god like in the fact that they like, did a pretty darn good job like at times yeah they went a little bit over the top like especially at the beginning where like it was a lot of movement and sawing and trying to fully comprehend what was going on was tough and then once you got into the story and got what was going on the movements kind of synced up which mm -hmm. is when things kind of got together which was nice so i definitely say the movement was pretty strong on that one jill i see you i'm gonna to piggyback off that too mac and share a bit of the the uh um, our time together is like a secret insider with oh what a lovely war and how it's mm -hmm. very hard to mime shoveling and i'll be oh my shoveling a grave with like 10 other of your cast members that all have to be doing it at the exact same time with the exact same degree of intensity um the so, verses we did for that and it's ex and it's exhausting like you are mm -hmm. physically exhausted and so like that that is something like the my favorite element is the physicality and the specificity of the physicality because like um even though i i feel like that is an acquired taste for some viewers um like they don't necessarily understand why it's needed or if it's, it is a specific style um just like from a performer point of view like it is excruciatingly difficult like and it it looks like they are attacking it with ease but i will tell you it, it took a lot of collaboration and focus for the individual and us the team to do that and um i just uh, it was such a refreshing thing to watch this whole company operate um 
physically as a unit, even though their characters required like uh, certain gestures or, or um, in different moments, different levels of intensity. Uh, I was never, I w- there wasn't a moment where I was like, oh, that person didn't hit the mark or like, mm-hmm. oh, that moment should have been more intense or less intense. And again, it plays into what Ryan has said, like um, this piece, I think really allowed the audience to kind of like choose their own adventure when it comes to like, what are you taking away from these scenes? Mm-hmm. And the just the the tact and the um, time and complete exhaustive effort that these actors put into their physicality uh, as like a baseline for our minds as the viewer to kind of just like connect dots because it this production does make you think abstractly and chronologically because there were moments too where I was like okay wait what's happening here I had to check in. But I could, I had, the physicality never faltered for me. Like I was always mm-hmm. able to kind of like sink into this moment and at least glean something from it. Um, and then this kind of goes into like it pairs well with um, kind of contrasting what Ed was saying earlier. I liked how there was stark contrast between like a lot of movement happening and then there was those moments where it was just a spot and a character talking. And the fact that a lot of the dialogue in those moments where it was like, zoom, here's a spot and a person's talking was similar to characters. I kind of liked that quality because it really allowed me to like, especially this being an adaptation from a book, it allowed me to kind of sit and just like read the words off the page, right? Or like this person is now my narrator. It's allowing me time to breathe and sit in this moment and just get some sort of background or like premonition as to what's going to happen. Um, or because a lot of those moments are very abstract, just kind of like sit with my own thoughts for a hot second before we're on the move again. So I kind of liked that the the monologues were very uniform for character and with all the actors, like everyone kind of speaking in the same way. Um, but again, I know that that's a very acquired taste. Like a lot of people probably would not like that or they would be taken out of that. Um, so yeah, so physicality, paired with the zoning in of like uniform speaking that would be my favorite element fair ed what was your favorite element the lighting uh i i really did like the lighting when they were underwater i thought that was really cool contrast with the burning that happened later on in the fire like it wasn't anything it and it, it, it wasn't too far off from the default lighting that they had of that i guess hot barren sun wherever they were in the south so I thought that was very cool. Yeah, and it was very dusty. It just seemed like they were out out in the uh in the outback or boonies or something. <laughs> so so I did like the lighting. It was it was daunting. But in a good manner. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, okay. That I would actually add to the lighting that I think is even more pronounced in the video than it is live. Is just how dark the transitions got. Yeah. Because like when you're in the theater, it still gets dark, but you can kind of always see the movements and the outline there. But just because due to the kind of poor video quality, this almost became a point in its favor. It just got so dark. And then when the lights came up, you everyone's exactly on their mark. And so you're like, wow, how did they do that? Yeah, like, I really such- did. I really did like that moment when they were in the wagon. All of them, all of Anne's family was in the in the wagon and Anne's was standing off to the side within the shadows, speaking mm-hmm. down to them, standing up while they were all seated down. I mean, I know the wagon is supposed to be something looking as if it's higher up, but mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. uh, sculpture that they made together 
it was it very much highlighted his sort of tyranny yeah mm-hmm. over the over the family and same to add to that ed with the characters that were like um faceless or like in silhouette like a lot mm-hmm. of the times with uh dewey dell's uh for example like going to the pharmacy like that character was like not only in the shadows and in the dark, but it was like lower than like the character that we're supposed to be focusing on. So I agree with you. Like, even though the levels necessarily like, um, realistically wouldn't make sense. Like someone being lower than a wagon or like in a store, someone being on a different level. It was like a really good dramaturgical use of the space of like, this is, we're just highlighting the things that you should see and still creating that like differing dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Okay, so now we get on to the weakest part of the production, and I want to start this one. <laughs> okay. Because okay. I think the weakest part was the damn costumes. Hmm. Like, they were so bland, and the fact that all the brothers looked the damn same, telling them apart was practically impossible. Like, could we not have done a little bit more to like identify who these characters were so we could easily spot them? Honestly, it's like, at least the dad, he wore a black shirt. So it was like, okay, he's a little bit outside the, the game from the, the other ones. The daughter, she's the only daughter. So it's easy to identify her. But you got Jewel, not uh, um, uh, Vardaman, because he's young. So you can identify him from the voice. But you got Jewel. Um, Daryl and Cash. Yeah, Cash and, and, and Daryl. Like, they all were very similar. And at the beginning, when you're trying to figure out who's who on stage, it it, it adds an extra hurdle for the audience to get over. Um, and the fact that, like, on the website where they give you the link, it just says actor name performer. It doesn't actually give a character name. So you can't even go to the website to reference who they are. And then, like, you have them playing townspeople, which for the most part is then just putting on really awkward fake noses, which was like, I don't know why that was a choice. I'm not like, throw on a jacket, throw on a hat. Something to like give you a little bit more than just a fake nose. Truth be told, like, I like the noses. I thought that was like a fun, simple fix for like just any time that they weren't their main character. It was easy to like tell, and they were often wear hats and like blazers too with those yeah. characters. My one thing, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It was kind of a take on like a clown nose. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, but well, I mean, it was very clownish with like the fact that like, yeah. you could see the string going yeah. around it. Like, like it was very like. um rude mechanical like mm-hmm. that that nose but like i would i just really think they could have done a much better job of figuring out a way to give these brothers a bit more of their own visual voice because we'll talk about this more when we get into the production and like the adaptation questions that we have but like once again identify making sure these characters are easily identifiable and you can follow their story is key to this story because it's all about this family going through the plight of dragging this corpse across the Mississippi. And yet, when you can't always identify who's who, because also we're dealing with not the greatest film, like audio, like film quality, it can get really frustrating after all, because it's like, I don't fully connect with you because I can't remember who you are and what you are. And, and, and yeah, so and it's not until they get certain characters, it's like the guy with the broken leg. It's like, okay, he's now like stuck on the ground a lot. So clearly we know more about him. But like, and then like the other guy where I was like, for the longest time, I didn't figure out the whole horse thing till like they sold the horse. I was like, oh, he likes the horse. Like for the most part, I was like, he's the guy that flails around trying to mount a horse. Okay. Good, got him. And then we got Hannibal Lecter over here who's like always like, yes, 
And then I did this clip. <laughs> Like, and ironically, he's the one that arrives in an asylum at the end, so that exactly. checks out. Exactly. <laughs> oh exactly. Like, for the most part, Right? Like, there are certain things, like, you had to do to, like, identify these characters, and you could have easily just done that by being, like, white shirt, black tie, white shirt, bow tie, white shirt, vest. Like, I, I, you still gotta keep them in the white and black attire, because obviously they're in funeral attire. But you could have done at least a little, like, this that could have been a look <laughs> to at least give them something to get make it a little bit easier to track who they were so yeah costumes are my biggest hurdle where i'm like come on people a little bit more effort like i i i get we're not striving to have, have like a whole warehouse of costumes to go and pick from but like value village has a lot of dress shirts you can go and pick a, a dress shirt out of or a like a piece of accessory to help solidify who they are mm-hmm. so yeah costumes uh ed well, I've got a lot to say. <laughs> Good. Go. Um, I totally agree with Mac on everything costume related. So that's whatever Mac said about costumes. That's what that's my take on that as well. The next thing I would say is sound. I did not like that they were making sound with their mouths. The vultures cawing. I thought, what is happening? Like it sounds like a guy is in a bush cawing. <laughs> The shoveling, I thought the, I thought all the sounds they made with their mouths were very distracting. I thought it took away from what they were actually doing, whatever they were doing. Then the other thing was the voice. And I already said that accents played a factor, but I don't think that's the only factor. I think a lot of them screamed their lines, which was very incoherent for me as well. Like, Jewel screaming goddamn every scene that he was in, or at least every scene that he was in. <laughs> I was. I thought that's that is that is a memorable quote at the end of the at the end of the production for me. God damn you! <laughs> God damn you! I was like, how many times can you? How many different ways can you scream it? But also from the dad as well, and then from yeah, the dad I couldn't understand. The brother Daryl, the one who loses his mind, right? Daryl. Yeah. Daryl. Daryl. Yep. Daryl. Yeah. His. So the so another big thing was for the ones who weren't screaming their lines, for the ones who were speaking like Dewey and Darl and Bart Bart Barden or the youngest boy. Bardman. <laughs> yeah. The youngest boy. There was no differentiation in their speech. Everything sounded like one big thought. And when clearly there's so much more that they're saying within these lines. If it just sounds like one big thought, everything, all the ideas, whatever other thoughts are coming in, are are going to leak and and feel like they're not being said. So at times, even if I could understand the words they were saying, I didn't know what they were getting. Mm. And that was the biggest thing in terms of voice. The other thing, and I think this is the biggest one, was the movement for me. Hmm. They they study in macaque is what it, what yeah. it is. So, albeit, I know nothing of Lecoq. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know enough to know you don't like it. <laughs> well, at the Academy, we do study Commedia dell'arte, the forms, the archetypes and that. We study John Mayerhold's uh, biomechanics. John Mayerhold. <laughs> Did I say it right? <laughs> Visible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Biomechanics. <laughs> you study biomechanics. Oh man, I butchered the name. 
<laughs> it's okay. He's dead. He won't mind. Yeah, he won't mind. <laughs> anyway, we study biomechanics. We have uh, uh, we we do we do learn clown like some clown movements as well. We've had a professional clown from Slava Snow Show come and do a workshop with us. Mm-hmm. So, just giving some insight, whatever I guess useless insight I have into movement. I thought. In contrast to what Will, to what Jill had said earlier about the movement being effortless, I thought it was the opposite. I thought it was exhausting. It looked exhausting to me. They, everything seemed very sporadic, seemed very overdone. And maybe that's a style thing. Maybe that's stylistic, and I'm just not understanding. That could be Lecoq. I'll give it. it I'll is, give yeah. it that. I'll give it that. Right. Uh, but it didn't look clean. It didn't look smooth. There wasn't the precision that was the precision wasn't always consistent so for example when they're holding the coffin up and they're walking in unison one is walking at a different rhythmic pace uh as opposed to the other one and that was very that was very much supposed to be a synchronized movement towards but you have one person who's stumbling the other person who's moving at a different stride and the other person who's moving at a shorter stride than the second person so it's like it's it's not matching up well and Jumping in and out of the out of the wagon, keeping the hand still so it doesn't come down whenever you go over. It's like like you said, it's very difficult. It's very hard, especially movement based principles. Those are those are very difficult. So I don't I don't fault it, but it wasn't always precise in my viewing of it. And then to add to the costuming, I don't think that the costumes were all that uh, all that to blame for distinguishing the characters they very very little were forms implemented into the characters for instance like ans he he had his shoulders hunched whenever you saw him from a distance you could tell okay that's that right <laughs> and so like a form like that he's he played through consistently but when everybody else Aside from like the doctor, who was clearly always hunched back, like had his suitcases always ready to go. Like aside from those two figures within the within the piece, everyone else was either standing straight up, squared feet, paralleled shoulders, uh, very motionless or stagnant, which was odd for such a heavy movement piece. Whenever they were still, and then or they would fluctuate behind between that or like just like small little shoulder slumps. And if everybody else is doing that, then there's really no distinction. So I don't know what kind of form they could have taken on. It's just there were no forms to really make a distinction between them anyway. So that is my piece on the weakest part of the production. Um, I can piggyback just briefly off of that, Mac, because yeah. uh, it kind of goes to talking about like inconsistencies. Um, so the weakest thing for me was like, uh, the pace um and more so talking about like the beginning of the piece like it took i feel like if i would have read the novel beforehand i would be on board and i would be able to kind of like strip that aside but it took me like a really long time to like get in on the story and like get into the nitty-gritty of like who these people are and like what they're doing because i just this whole setup of building the coffin to me was like a little bit exhausted it was like hey we get it you're building a coffin your mother is ill like we're understanding it i don't think i need this for like 40 minutes 
And again, like, I guess to be devil's advocate to my own disliking, um, it could have been like establishing for the audience, like, this is the technique we're using. We're kind of like getting you in on like, this is how the story is going to be told through using gesture, through lack of set, through but it's like, I don't you need 40 minutes for that. I don't need that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need you to, to hold my hand with that. Like, just, just throw it at me. Like I prefer, I would prefer that versus like the saw going back and forth one more time. You know, it's just like, I got to a point where finally it was, it wasn't until they actually started to go on the journey. Like when that wagon became built, I was like, okay, we're ready. The play is starting. Like, and so I think I just, I needed like a quickened pace up until that moment. Um, which again is kind of sad because I, part of it might've been, they wanted to like establish that, like, this is the way we're doing the piece. This is the way that like physically you will be seeing these images and what have you. And, and it, I do think there are some st very striking, um, emotional and physical access that you can get through like Lecoq style and, and, uh, the production that we saw is like a good example of that little vignettes that that's possible. But so it's sad to think though, that like it took that much time to like tell the audience that like this is this is the style that is obviously not well known or well executed um yeah so i had i, I didn't have nearly as much as the rest of you like truth be told i have a special soft spot for this production the book that it's based on the just yeah especially having more than anything having seen the production way back when and this is just kind of my jam, basically. So even though <laughs> I recognize that the a lot is lost in the translation of building it, at least the way it was filmed here, mm -hmm. I fortunately have two frames of reference for kind of falling back on, which I understand. Also read the book. Yeah, that's one of those two <laughs> frames of reference. The, yeah, so I I know the characters, I know like what's happening, kind of at various stages, and I can remember seeing it live the first time. And especially since that was a very positive theater experience that did stick with me, naturally I, there will be that nostalgia factor. I do stand by it. I wish I could have seen this live. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I hope they bring it back after COVID and like after we can see theater again, because this is like a widely touring production that has had multiple revivals at various times in Toronto and elsewhere. Yeah. So like, like I said, like when I saw it at Factory, that was a year after this was filmed at Passmarie and they gave it a completely different title, Take Me Back to Jefferson. So like this is also a work in progress kind of that could be like tinkered with so maybe if they're listening to like it's some of this the beginning <laughs> well there's a lot they'll have to do i'm doing a 2020 production in this yeah. we'll get to that later though but. okay well so so just going back like so in terms of my kind of like shorter list of like weakest <laughs> elements i don't think there's anything that i have that wasn't already brought up by one of you i agree that the visual diversity of at least the brothers could have been something could have been done there. And like, honestly, though, I don't really feel like that was majorly a, a costuming kind of issue though, because like, yes, while they are wearing similar clothes, there was like something costume wise that did distinguish all of them. Like Darrell was always like buttoned up and to comment on your point, Ed, he had that form. Like I never had a hard time picking him out. Yeah. And the only two that I often kind of struggled between was Jewel and Cash. And then once Cash broke his leg, that was resolved by the end. And Jewel was always the one on the horse. So whenever it was a his leg earlier. Yeah. <laughs> all in all, there was a lot of times that I was like, what 
white man, brown haired person is yeah. this now? <laughs> well, and that's, I kind of think, and like, I don't know at what stage in the development the casting happened because this is like a collective creation piece. I don't know if these are just all company members who said, came together and let's do this show or if there was auditions, but I really think more visual diversity it doesn't even necessarily have to be racial diversity, although I, that wouldn't hurt as well, but just different like shapes and sizes and ages of like we have hair color hair like, color that was yeah. the main thing between like cash and jewel i was like hey these actors they look similar and they, they because like cash was the one kind of being rigorous building the the casket and then it, that that rigor sort of switched to jewel with like the timing of the horse and being the saver the savior of the fire thing i was like wait what brother is what like you know they certainly look like brothers and i'll, I'll use yeah. that as a defense for their casting go. it's like they i i'm thinking that they were looking for people who look similar that yeah. if which they were great. outreaching which is yeah. fine yeah, yeah. which, which like yeah i can get behind that but i think like Other. casting in the 21st century doesn't demand that the same way that it may be yeah. used to this is all just a long way of saying that i think the fact that the brothers were all these like four white guys of similar age and build could have you know something could have been done casting wise that maybe if casting was up, like up for grabs kind of in this i do agree that if it wasn't then maybe something with costumes would have been a second bet but i also sort of like the uniformity of the costumes as this point of cohesion in a way um and like I don't want to fault the costumes too hard because I think the noses and the hats and the blazers for the side characters was lovely and I that's all part of the costuming so I don't want to dink costuming no good as like you know you know what I think would have would have been a good guide if mm -hmm. that scene and this like I said credit where credits due that scene where they're all in the wagon the dad is sitting hunched over in the center uh cash or jewel or is, is it standing in the back looking down at all I think it's jewel that's looking down at all the family and then they're all just kind of together while the i think it's the doctor that's that's speaking to them from outside or someone is speaking to or them. it's samson or one of the towns yeah yeah but when they're all in that portrait their family portrait i think if they had taken a picture of that and then given it to the performers and said maintain this this form this structure throughout the entire performance because i thought that that picture that they painted was mm -hmm. exactly the archetypes that they were. I thought that was I thought that was a picturesque yeah. uh, visual of, of who they are as people. Yeah. And I could understand just from looking at it, their dispositions and their uh I guess their their trials. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The only other point I kinda had, and again it's one that was sort of brought up already, so we don't need to belabor it, but yeah, it's just the accents and the articulation. And that's the key word being articulation more so than accent, because if and again, the sound quality did not help here. I found it a lot easier to follow, but not that much easier the first time around in the theater. But yeah, if if we could if they were articulating like the key words and it was easier to always like grasp exactly what was being said, the accents wouldn't seem so uh I don't even want to say that, it just seems so disruptive. Um, but yeah, there was like a lot of just jumbled kind of talking that is part of like the characterization that they all just talk quickly and and trust me, when you read those first few chapters in the book, if we're talking about the pace, like it does take a little while to sink into what exactly is happening. And yeah. like, if anyone also read The Sound and the Fury, like 
that is broken up into four different perspectives that we get like one at a time. And the first one is by someone who is neuroatypical and that like really kind of you read the beginning of the book like what even is happening and then you need the other perspectives to kind of ground you and okay now we can sort of piece together and that is kind of just Faulkner's thing <laughs> so I I think it is and we'll get to adaptation aspects in a moment but I think the pacing certainly could have been tightened and we maybe didn't need 40 minutes of sawing but that is there are long chapters of just cash going on about like his design of the coffin and all the thought he's putting into it and i think their way of trying to effectively translate that was well as just watching sawing for a long time for, so for sure. I, so it, that's not to excuse it part of adaptation is that you need to decide what 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 we can cut for no pun intended but like um yeah and i think yeah some of that stuff could have been tightened but i do see it as coming about out of fidelity more so than anything. Fair. Okay. Well, I think we belabored this talking point long enough. Yes. <laughs> uh, I had a lot to say. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Jill, why don't you start us off with, do you think this production hit the mark? Is it worth the watching? So, okay. I, I think it's worth the watching. Um, I think just by judging the conversation that we've had, like maybe it didn't hit the mark. Um, I think from like a stylistic point of view, it does just because it, it again is giving like a, um, it's showing, it's bringing Lecoq to the forefront. It is, it is hitting home their mandate portion of like, visit, like deriving the story from the body versus text, which I think is very important for artists to watch. And even if it didn't, it wasn't executed perfectly, I think, um, an element of acting that at least I know myself and um, other actors come to this roadblock a lot too, is that um, you can rely on your body and gestures to help work out the text and moments of a piece for you. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be the highlight like this production was, but I think uh, and just knowing like my performances in the past, when I have been bogged down by a certain passage or like not knowing how to figure out this character, I know that turning to gesture and just even just doing some exercises in gesture for that specific character and whether that be as extreme as some of the moments we've seen in this production or just like a little tick or a little habit to physicalize um, really does help you uh, access the text just by doing like an exercise in physicality. Um, just as a performer, that's been an experience for me. Uh, I know when I was in Top Girls um, in my uh, fourth year production at theater school um i had to play angie and isabella bird so angie is like a nine-year-old lot of energy um uh um and then contrasted to isabella bird who is like a 70 year old uh bogged bogged down in some moments but like ferocious there was just like a lot a lot to do it i needed to turn to gesture i needed to turn to physicality Otherwise, those characters would have been either one and the same or just not hit in the mark. Or So I think this production is um, an example of like almost like the excess of physicality, even though it was distracting for this particular production. It's to encourage like viewers or encourage actors to be like, hey, you can derive something from gesture. Um, and... I did like the fact that um, I do agree with Ed. I, there was times that I'm like, okay, now I'm really stretching my imagination to like kind of get what I'm supposed to be getting. But I did like the fact that like 
I feel like this is one of those pieces that you can talk about for such a long time because like every audience member is going to walk away with a differing perspective. Um, and whether that be residing in a production element or like in the way that like a tableau was hit or in the way that like a physicality was hit in the way that like a speech was said, I do like performances that like you walk away from and you have, you can talk a lot about it on different levels. So from a dramaturgical and imagination stimulating perspective, yes. Overall, I think, I, I, to be honest, like, I don't know if it hit the mark because it's unlike something where we've had this question before with Shakespeare's that we've probably seen more than one Mackers. So we can say if this one in comparison to something hit the mark, whereas with this kind of just was aside from the novel theatrically it resides as its own thing so mm -hmm. i would maybe like to see it um performed again with changes and then uh, i'd be able to fully say if it hit the mark or not but yeah yeah ryan well i think you probably know what my answer is it hit the mark for me i don't want it like now and i'm sorry being the one who chose this production if some of you enjoyed it a lot less than i did i'm sorry to, if i necessarily like put you, you all through this apologize no, that's what apologize. It is. art is art we should like watching yeah. all types of art is good yeah. no matter what but yeah truth be told i picked this because i remembered enjoying it so well and was so excited when i saw that they put the streaming on line and i've been wanting to watch the stream because they put it up in may i've been wanting to watch this whole time but because we have our we've been doing a shakespeare play from stratford every week i just haven't found the time to watch this I'm like can we just do this selfishly <laughs> so since we're done with stratford for the time being anyway can this be the next thing we do just so i can <laughs> set aside time to watch this <laughs> um, but yes it's i i i in terms of the second half of this question the like would you recommend it? I would 100% recommend anyone go see it in the theater next time it comes up. I would be slightly less quick to suggest someone subscribe to the stream and watch the link, just because, yeah, I did find more so the audio than the video, but yes, the sound quality was very distracting at times and did not help the articulation issue that I was talking about a moment ago. But as I said, Prior to that, since the big production element for me, that is, and I think we all are kind of in agreement of this, that the reason to see the show kind of is these visual stage pictures that they created. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're more potent in the theater, but I don't feel like that was lost in translation from stage to screen here. So I would 100% say watch it just for those, even if you have a hard time following the dialogue and following the plot, because they're this is a bit of a, at least certain moments can be seen as a masterclass in that type of visual imagery, in my humble opinion. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me finish. <laughs> no, I, I'd much rather read the book and then come back to watch the production live. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I would definitely give this a second chance and going, going to see it live. But for for me as it stands right now i don't think it hit the mark fair mm -hmm. uh i'll say i'm on the fence like jill like for me i go any type of theater you, theater you watch whether it be live on stage or via computer screen um you can always get something out of it you can always gleam it's just, it's just like watching a bad movie 
Should we all watch Tommy Wiseau's The Room because it's an Oscar-winning masterpiece? No, but you definitely can glean something out of it. Like, I know, Ed, it's one of your favorite movies. For sure, for sure. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, like, I mean, like, right there, like, like, that's what's great about art is that art is a subjective form where we can all glean something. Like, I learned from watching this that costuming and making sure your characters are really distinct can really help tell a story. It makes me appreciate even more, like, shows like big shows like that like 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 a um Les Miserables where you have this plethora of characters but yet somehow they've still made it so you can follow all these distinct characters along their journey just makes you go okay what do I have to do if I'm going to be telling a story either as a director or as a performer to make sure that my audience can quickly snap into who these characters are so yeah. I don't have to get bogged down in 40 minutes of sign where I'm trying to set my world up like there, there are lessons you can take away from this. So what I say it hits the mark every time. No, I think there's some good visual images that you can lean from. I thought some of the acting was really well done. Uh, I definitely can see Stratford doing a production of this. Like I would love to see it with Tom McManus playing the father <clears throat> and like Sean McKenna as the mother. I think that'd be a great bit of theater. I, I don't think you'd have to do all the movement with this. I think you could just take the script and just do it a Stratford way with like an actual carton coffin um because like they did do the grapes of wrath which was a okay production uh that also starred tom mcmahon that's funny enough um as the priest um or ex-priest uh but either way point being that i do think there's some valid elements in this production that i think you can glean and learn something from even if overall we're like yeah didn't quite hit the mark I, I like it. I would definitely give this a, a chance seeing it live just to see what new things I could take away. And now that yeah. it builds the story a little bit better, I would definitely just want to watch that beginning again just because now that I kind of know where we're driving to, it, I'm sure that will help clarify that beginning 40 minutes of song. Um, and I know that I've been the antagonist of the piece, but you know, credit where credit is due. Like I, I, I do commend them for for the visuals that they were striving for. And at times they did hit the mark with, mm. with some of their visuals. Like this this piece isn't without its gems. Yeah. And I don't I don't I don't think this is anything I don't think just because I don't think it hits the mark, I don't think that defines any of the actors as being bad or any mm -hmm. yeah. company itself being bad. Uh just from my seeing of the production, this is just the yeah. What I got out of my first like, I keep saying it. It very, it very much is an acquired taste. Like yeah. whether you like it or not, like you have to know that like this piece of theater is one of those like it's a thinker, it's an abstractor, and like all theater that resides in that way, people are gonna love it, people are gonna hate it. Like that's yeah. just how that works, right? Mm -hmm. so. yeah, some people like going to art museums and looking at squares. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some one last thing I kind of just want to add on this. For those watching who are on the fence if they're going to bother to subscribe to the stream and watch the actual performance. I, we've been using the phrase 40 minutes of sawing a lot, and that kind of misrepresents the first 40 minutes of the show, because while there is a lot of sawing in the, those 40 minutes, and I think we all kind of locked in the idea that it's 40 minutes of sawing precisely because Cash, the one doing the sawing, does not speak his first non- <laughs> line until 40 minutes into the production there is other stuff that happens yes, it's not yeah, just yeah. mother watching. is dying yeah the, i just said that as like a, a funny I, I know <laughs> so. i agree i agree it's a funny like idiom here but 
for those who are on the fence don't actually think that that was literal because yeah. there's uh, plot it, going around the song but there's yes. a lot of freaking song there is, in the first there is a lot minutes. of song just we're don't all think drama that goers we we <laughs> exaggerate just, just don't, <laughs> don't think that it's 40 minutes of literally watching pain dry until Ew, suddenly they get into the wagon it's not some Beckett interpretation of a man is sawing at a desk or like yeah going to be stirred on Beckett um, okay I also like Beckett, speaking of acquired taste. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, maybe take that as a grain of salt for my enthusiasm for this production. Yeah, I like coming with the room. I love it. See, and that, here, here we go, just really quickly, like, that just is so funny. I thought you're like, some people, the people who probably eat this production up right. hate the room. The so room. it's just like, it just goes to say, like, <laughs> yeah. subjectivity is real. Yeah. Exactly. That's the joy of art. Yeah. Um, okay. So now let's dive into some more uh, play-based questions. Uh, now that we've kind of harped on the actual production well long enough. Uh, but our first question is, does this play hold up as an adaptation of Faulkner's novel? Uh, or for those who have not read the novel, which is a majority of this panel, uh, uh, w- w- uh, after seeing this production, would you like to read the novel? Uh, Ed? Yeah, I, given- like I said, I, I, I'd like to read it. I. <laughs> I mean, I would like to read it now uh, to get to know the story. It sounds like an odyssey in the South, so it sounds like it would be fun. Uh, th- yes, this production makes me want to read the book. Yeah. Okay. Jill? Yeah, so I haven't read the novel, and I'm in the same uh, realm as Ed. Like, I, these characters were very enticing and interesting to me. I, I would like to... I also like reading a lot of literature from the 1930s um, and the 20s, too, but more so the 30s. Um, I just find it really interesting and complex and... Um, it is old sport. Like, history might be repeating itself with, with the same sort of themes that presented <laughs> to the world and economies in the 30s, so... <laughs> blow the dust off of the uh, the dust bowl books everyone um <laughs> but uh i would kind of like to see just like you were saying mac like not necessarily shocking in particular but like seeing like a realist or like naturalistic approach to this text versus mm. it being using a certain style to exude the story um that would be interesting as well so i think like yeah after reading the novel um my director of dramaturgical brain might go a little bit more wild of like what what would this look like in a different style and a different genre and albeit maybe even a different era like um yeah so i, I would like to revisit visit mm. the novel yeah yeah uh ryan you can go and then <laughs> do you want to go first mac and finish Actually, off yeah, no, the, yeah. the, <laughs> do i want to read it portion before i get yeah. into does it work as an adaptation right <laughs> um okay so like i wouldn't mind reading the book just so i could understand the characters better because I don't feel we got a full picture of who these characters were reading the uh, watching the show. Like they, they all came across very one like one dim- especially the brothers, very one dimensional tracks. Like once again, we had to have certain like physical traits, like breaking a leg, to distinguish who they were. But I'm sure if you, I'm sure Brian, I'm sure you can probably back this up having read the book. But if you read those chapters of the book from these characters' perspectives, you do get a better idea of who these characters are. Yeah. And in their more, voices are much more exactly the individualized yeah. voices of who these characters are that I think missed in this production. Hence, why I think reading the book would just help solidify hmm. differentiating like a jewel from a cash from a a dural, um, like all those types of things. And I, I, I yeah, because I mean, like reading the plot summary and then watching this, I was like, okay, so they hit all the major marks: flood, fire, sell the donkey, sell the horse, abortion. Like, 
they hit all the plot points for from what I from what I can tell from so like so it's not like it's not like I missed like a Harry Potter where they cut a whole subplot that like is just no longer present. It's like here at least okay we did get the the plot. It's just the character work. I think the book could help bring that a little bit more up to task because I found a lot of the monologues they all came across in the same voice, whether it was a Cash, a Jewel, or a Daryl. Like they all kind of spoke the same way, same like there was no character way of speak. I, I, one of the things I've been learning in my screenwriting class is when you're writing a screenplay or a script, right? I'm sure as a writer you can talk to me about this too. But like each character should have their own distinct way of speaking, and and which means as a writer you have to write in that particular voice. So like the way Jill speaks in her vocabulary. Is different from the way I speak. So if we were writing a script with us as characters, we would have very different types of lines to say that because we just have different upbringings, different dialogue that mm-hmm. we would have. But here it all just felt wide brush wash of dialogue, especially when it got to the monologues. It was like, now I'm going to narrate a section of the book for you. And here's what we did. It was like, okay, clearly we didn't want to do this part of the movie. We just did this one in spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> to move this pot on a little bit <laughs> like i there were certain things that were described i was like we couldn't have like had like a dialogue like just back and forth conversation like we had to do this like through a, a monologue one i don't know but like overall i just uh, think yeah uh just to just to add on to that and yeah. to what ryan had explained in the very beginning that this was written from a first person uh yeah, multiple first person most multiple first person yeah i do like that they that they did the mm-hmm. sep- uh the Individual monologues. monologues like I do too. I just think they used. I, I think that became a crutch a lot of times. Like where, like after yeah. a while, it was like, and now it's time for a monologue. Gotcha. It was like, like I, I, I think, I think I could have been a little bit more varied between, like, I, like there's not a lot of scenes where it's two characters just talking to each other. It's either like mm-hmm. movement with narration, or just spotlight monologue, or just straight up movement. Yeah. Like there wasn't any like I, 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 it's hard to like the scenes that really stuck out to me were like the ten dollars scene where the dad takes the ten dollars from the daughter because it's an actual like conversation between two people. Which is uh, I will add just on that point it's one of the more dialogue heavy chapters in the book itself. Yeah. So like I'm that's bring the book up. Yeah, I, well, I have it handy. <laughs> I'll get to it in a minute. Why? But like, yeah. but yeah, like that's a scene that stuck out to me more because it's like oh character interaction that actually like. Same thing with the coffin carrying scene, where like Jewel and I think it, it's, it's Jewel and Daryl that are carrying the coffin and like carrying the coffin right into yeah. the barn. Yeah. yeah. So like even that scene, like even though I can't remember exactly what happened, other than God damn it, uh, Jewel, God like that, damn it. like that, like that, and like but like the fact they were kind of ribbing each other. It's like okay, we're getting some character work here. Like yeah, I just think overall read the book just so you can understand the characters a little bit better because I think that would help. Develop this production a bit more if we were to mount it again and tinker with the script a bit to help make that a little bit more character driven, a little bit less adapting a book driven. Um, yeah, Ryan, now as the one person on the panel who's actually read the book, as our yeah. resident, yeah. so something I will give us a lesson, yeah. something letter of cigarettes. <laughs> so, something I will add is I read the book a long time ago, I had read it prior to seeing this in theater in 2014. I don't remember how much long like how much time elapsed between the two of those but like the book certainly wasn't fresh in my memory like going into this that said 
So I've mentioned on many of our Shakespeare panels that I always have my complete works of Shakespeare open in front of me, not to necessarily read along, but to follow along in. That's kind of my way of clocking wherever dramaturgical changes have been made, because I think that is part of the discussion, certainly with contemporary Shakespeare performance. Uh, I did not intend to do the same with this because it's an adaptation. It's not unlike a Shakespeare script that is, yep, this is the text we're using. I'm like, there's going to be no way I can follow along in the book. Yeah. So I did have the book close by because I was referencing it while I was writing these very questions that we're answering right now. Um, but I, I did not intend to flip through. Halfway through the performance, I wanted to check something in the book. This was precisely at the moment when we have Addie's monologue in the water, because I knew that would be a part that'd be very easy for me to find in the book, because Addie only has one chapter of her monologuing to us. So I just wanted to see, okay, it's interesting, the abstract way they're doing this monologue, how much of that is pulled from, it's precisely verbatim from the text. So I just paused, I got pulled up the Addie chapter, and I was able to follow along very easily. And then from that moment on, about halfway through the performance, I just continued following along. And you know what? This is an incredibly like faithful rendering of the book onto the stage, which I kind of already knew it was faithful, just from like the spirit of the text feels like it's been translated well. But having the book in front of me, it really actually gave me an appreciation for just, I don't know how the actual like drafting or writing or dramaturging of this piece went, but I think it's very clear that everybody went into the first day of rehearsal with the book in hand and they, every piece of dialogue seems to have been extracted and then any additional dialogue was added as filler. And those parts that you were complaining about, Mac, where it is like the spotlight on individuals, those are the ways that we communicate this like split perspective. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, so just on a pure level of fidelity, I think, this production as an adaptation does a great job. Now we've talked a moment ago about how the pacing could have maybe been tightened. So maybe that's a fault of some of this fidelity to let it draw out the same way it feels like it draws out in the book. That said, something else that I want to point out that also gives me an appreciation for this piece as adaptation is 2013 when this first saw stages and i believe when the version we watched was filmed there was another adaptation of this same novel that came out that year james franco made his film adaptation right. that same year which he wrote directed and played darl in um it was not good it was not i'm not gonna mince words it was not very good but that adaptation is so frequently cited as an example of Franco's hubris at thinking himself talented enough as an auteur that he could tackle this presumably unfilmable novel. I think I, I think I saw the trailer for that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a thing in 2013. It's no fault if anyone didn't see it or didn't remember it. But and that's the thing. Like that was a big part of the reviews and discussions of that film was just like this novel is unfilmable by its very design. And Franco, who by that point didn't have a lot of films under his belt as this just like, you know, eternal art school, like film school nerd, kind of like the hubris of him, the audacity of thinking that he can be the one to bring it justice was it was a big part of like the collective critics dunking on Franco because the film wasn't good, granted, but maybe they were a little harsh in a lot of that stuff. But that said, I think the reasons why people think this is an unfilmable novel 
are precisely the same reasons why I think it works well in theater and what this production really teased out very well. Because where Franco did gimmicky film tricks like split screens to show the multiple perspectives, like, yeah, yeah, it's obvious gimmicky, like, ooh, it's multiple perspectives, therefore I'll put both on screen at once. And like, it's, it, it's like very much surface level interpretation of how to like shepherd this onto the screen. But like, I feel like you could watch this staging without even realizing that the book is written into these multiple. I didn't uh, realize until I did until I did my research afterwards that the yeah. book is first person, multiple chapters. Like, it's not one protagonist, like a like a single main character protagonist plot, mm-hmm. but like each character gets their own moment. Yeah, and like because while well, the book certainly like the fact that each chapter starts with the name of the character who's narrating it, like the book certainly doesn't try to hide those themes. But I think this production completely kept those multiple perspectives without making a big show of this is what we're doing, which I very much respect. Like those monologues are the perfect example, but it didn't become like this clumsy jumbled mess of how, how are we going to display polyvocal narration? Because no, in theater, you can just do that, have the character's spotlight turn to the audience and give their narration. Mm -hmm. Like it's something that I kind of to myself, refer to as the Salieri principle, if I can dig into my own sort of personal dramaturgy toolkit. But one of my ladies' like, top 10 favorite plays is Amadeus. And, yes. and like, I love the play. I love the film version. I love the NT Live production that was not too long ago. Um, and what I think is so interesting, and as treating Amadeus as this case study for adapting theater into film, is that maybe this is changing nowadays, but certainly when the movie came out, this wasn't the case, is theater has the freedom to break the fourth wall the way that film doesn't feel like it can, or it has to do like a big, whimsical, Deadpool, jokey thing anytime it tries. Or So, uh, whereas the Salieri principle is that on the stage, you could just easily have this character be the extra diegetic narrator and speak to the audience about the story in the film, we need the framing device of he is giving his confession to the priest. It has to be this mimetically sealed dialogue. And with that in mind, I think this production that we just watched is a good example of how theater can get away with that the way the film doesn't feel like it can. What makes this book unfilmable is precisely the reason why it works so well in theater. Mm-hmm. And just one last point, Mac, because you uh, frequently frame the previous question on the did it hit the mark on would I as a TA show this to my students, which I saved that version of the answer for now. I, I was certainly, because I love this production so much, I would show it's like theater directing any kind of like students for that. But more than anything, I would show this production to American literature students who are studying this novel in the literary context maybe to like open their eyes to how theater can be a vehicle for these works more so than I would show the Franco movie as like, a, okay, watch this piece and adaptation. But I, I do think that just as a faithful adaptation of the spirit of the novel, the, the structure of the novel, the dramaturgy of the novel, this checks all the boxes. And I think people who like the book and are studying it in that formal context would appreciate watching this. So I encourage you all to read the book and then read this. 
I have a tiny um, tangent question, Mac, to ask Brian if if I am allowed to do so. All Just right. He has <laughs> he has um, experience with the novel. Um, why do you think? Now, maybe it's just because this theater company operates this way, but that sort of using like Lecoq's style is the vein that they went with to tell this story on stage. Mm -hmm. I, if I had to guess, I mm -hmm. would say it's a bit of a cart before the horse that this is a Lecoq focused company and this is what they decided they, the story they wanted to tell more so than this is a story that needs to be told a la Lecoq. Right. Um, <laughs> To keep up the francophilia in this um yes <laughs> yes uh yeah i i can't necessarily think of aside from just the fact that it is certainly conducive to these visual images that we've all enjoyed in this and like the things like the horse and the mm -hmm. uh the sawing and like all of these elements that really do become vehicles for showing off that physical technique i think but like I don't I can't precisely pin down anything about this book in particular that I would think because like you can find any interesting book that right. provides that stuff I think they just something about I don't know who on the team necessarily pitched it but something about this book was just like important to them and touched them and they felt that you know we could do this interesting visualization of it and going back to my previous point about how theater can do this book justice much better than film can I think this production certainly is testament to that. So granted, this would have been in development before the Franco film came out since they were pretty concurrent with each other. So it's not like, oh yeah, Franco, watch us theater artists do it better than you can with your fancy cameras, which we have none of, clearly. Um, but yeah, that that's my two cents on that. I don't know if that's a satisfying answer and there might be if anyone from theater smith gilmore wants to go in the comments and explain the actual impetus we would all appreciate yeah. that i'm sure yeah i that just came up to me because as like a job like dramaturgically i think it like you were saying it's very much like the company derived from there and the story does work in this vehicle it's just like now knowing i can revisit the novel too and it, i just have like a spark in the back of my brain of like what would this production look like if it was done like a Grapes of Wrath or like a Mice and Men on stage, you and know? And, and I could comment on that because I think Steinbeck and Faulkner, although they're often kind of said in the same breath of these, these like Southern authors at the same time, dramaturgically, I think they are very different from each other. And Grapes of Wrath, like Steinbeck was actually like a novelist dramaturg kind of way, not so much with Grapes of Wrath, but like, of Mice and Men, for example, that is a novella that was written to also be a play. It's the play novelette was kind of one of Steinbeck's kind of trademark things where he's like, I prefer writing novels and I than writing scripts. But if you extract all the dialogue from this novel, you will have a serviceable script for a play. So if you've ever seen a stage version of, of Mice and Men, that's not some playwright having to tinker away at an adaptation that is them just extracting the dialogue from Of Mice and Men directly. Right. And I think Steinbeck having that type of dramaturgical brain makes something like The Grapes of Wrath or East of Eden like easier yeah. to kind of put into that format than something like this that is written wholesale to be a novel and needs this kind of like creative theatricalizing with like the movement to well, even, bring that even out. Just, 
the the because I I've not had the privilege of reading any of Faulkner's work, but like the way that you described him as being kind of like with both um both his novels, like he's placing you like in these in these people's lives without really any backstory. There is something too. jarring to that, um you know where like uh something like seeing this story in a very jarring style can sort of mimic that that flavor that Faulkner has in his writing versus Steinbeck's more like beginning middle end vibe mm-hmm. feel you know like that I guess that that would be a way to maybe justify um choosing this this bit more of a jarring yeah. style to to create uh the yeah. text on stage and like keep in mind this book I'll put it on screen again just because we talk about a few books now this book is capital M modernism and it is like pushing to the limits what you can do with the medium of the novel whereas I think someone like Steinbeck who also wrote screenplays for some of his own books when adapted to film he was thinking very much between mediums for someone like Faulkner who is like what can I do with text on a page so So then that already answers the question like okay there we go you know what i mean approached (laughs) his novel wanting to be this avant-garde i'm purposely writing outside of the context of what a novel should be Mm -hmm. i feel like that marries really well to the production you watched of like taking the risk and putting it on stage in a way that's a bit avant-garde and outside of the box or stage of how you would uh assume to perceive it you know yeah not justifying that it, it, it did that it executed that perfectly clearly by our discussion but but yeah i'm just yeah trying to find a way to dramaturgically justify the style and that that right there could could be a solid point. yeah very possible very good okay <laughs> so why are we heading to our next question <laughs> and jill i'll let you start this but you seem to have an answer like geared up for it which is is the father An- anis ants A- ants yes ants justified in putting his family through this dangerous journey to respect uh Addie's like final death wish to be buried in Jefferson. Jill So it's funny how you like accidentally mishapped his name there, Mac, (laughs) because like I'm gonna use my one swear word a panel and say that ants or anus, as Mac just accidentally said, is an ass. (laughs) He's an ass. Whoa. I really don't like him. Mm -hmm. Um you're not supposed to like I know, it. <laughs> I know, I know, um, for sure. Uh, like, executed perfectly. But um, I really don't think he's justified in it. Like, this is a character that I I can't get behind. And I think this is where it's, like, dated again a little bit, too. Like, uh, and again, dated in saying, like, this novel was written in the 30s. This production was in 2013. Um and now we're watching it virtually in 2020. I don't need to see characters like this on stage anymore. Like, I just think for some reason, like, it just didn't pack enough punch. Like, if you are having someone like that on stage, I think you need to make more, literally more of a statement or more of a contrast. Like, I wasn't understanding, like, I didn't have any, and I think the reason that makes me even despise him more is at the end, with the new lady brought in i'm like okay like you didn't care like if he actually cared about his wife and actually cared about filling out like bringing her wishes forward um 
everyone's making really grimacey faces, which I don't know why. <laughs> Am I missing something? I have to like, no, 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 Okay. Because I'm like, ah. You're, you are touching upon, you're touching upon a lot of the points I was going to make, so maybe I'll okay. let someone like Mac go first. Okay, then... so anyways, <laughs> it's just like, I... And maybe that's the message we're supposed to get from him, is that he doesn't care, and like... But again, watching it as like a 2020 audience, and like all of the stuff and the struggles that his kids go through either during the journey or like bring on to the journey with them. You know, there was a moment where I'm like, okay, like we're fulfilling and we're fulfilling your wife's duties in a very 1930s concept of actually taking a coffin and journeying by wagon to go to another and neighboring city to bury her, which I think is an outdated is an outdated concept if you were to take it literally now i think you can extract it to to sort of mean something else but um the way i just like i i don't know i he's not justified i don't like the character i i don't i don't think i think if you want a character like this on stage nowadays you need to do something radical with it otherwise it doesn't fuel the plot. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else want to? Hear I, I, I really want to hear what Mac is saying because he's making the grimaciest yeah, of the Mac's faces. Yeah, face is just really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hide my expressions well. I've God, that's one of my faults. But I do think he like he is justified in what he wants to do. I mean, don't get me wrong; he is an asshole, plain and simple. He is an old asshole that, like, what he does to his daughter with buying the teeth and all that shit, I don't like him for that. I really don't. I don't like it. I don't like what he, I don't like some of his actions he makes. But this is his wife, somebody who he clearly did love, and he was wanting to respect your final wishes. Like, having just gone through a lot of this with my grandmother just dying last summer, like, my grandparents were married 63 years. My grandfather would do anything to please her in her dying wishes. Like, there are things you do, and I get it. Like, and he, he, it's not like he said it on the dream, like, I want to make this as difficult as freaking possible. I want my son to break his leg. I want us to drown the donkeys. I want us to burn in a barn. Like, that's all shit that happens to him along the way. It's like Grapes of Wrath. Nobody sits out in Grapes of Wrath to sit on, a, on the most difficult journey. But that is part of that 1930s Americana perseverance story you're telling. And on top of that, he's a farmer. Like, mm -hmm. his wife is gone. He still has a farm he's getting back to with his family. You need another female presence on that farm. Does, does it make, uh, should, he, should he have breed a little bit longer before he found a new wife? Sure. I mean, we don't know much about her other than, like, he shows up at her house, borrows a shovel, and all of a sudden they're now married. <laughs> but, like, is that I, I feel like, like you gotta do. I mean, is, that, is, is that how marriage life. works in the South? <laughs> like, 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 like he's probably gonna have a leg amputated. Like, you're down a man. You need, you need somebody to help run that but, farm. Like, I get what you're saying, Mac, but I feel like, I, and maybe this is the character thing and not even a staging thing, or maybe it is a saving thing, but I, he doesn't care. Like the whole journey, all of the struggles that come with this journey 
he's either off stage or literally standing off to the side. Mm -hmm. He doesn't help them through it. And as someone who is so steadfast and wanting to fulfill the love of his life's wishes, you're not going to help put out the fire. You're not going to help fetch her out of the he's water. An old man. <laughs> That's no excuse. That's zero. He's not like, he's, like, I guess not like a young buck all of a sudden can go like carry the <laughs> coffin. I'm a type of person. I'm a thousand. I'm a thousand percent the person that I honor people's wishes. I think that's very important. I think that that is something that I do personally with my family too. But you have to back that up with an actual caring to do so. It's okay to not care to do so, but if you don't care to do so, I don't think it's right to justify. Like, and I think we see that in the stage of like him literally not returning to the hotel leaving them in disarray to like snatch this other lady friend who's not a lady friend who's literally already married into the family or at least assumed to be the way he addresses her and that that gesture of like come aboard climb aboard this like shit show that i had no hand in doing and literally took another hand before i i released my other hand into the ground like there's no. Hey, I think that comes more down to the portrayal. Start off sure, like, but as the journey unfolds, he's not present. He's I not, think that's like, more of the staging than the well, actual. Like, I, like, I don't know. In the book, is he more active in the book, Ryan? So, no, he's really kind of still off to the side of stuff. But, like, to your point, Mac, about how he's an old man, he does have these three adult sons who mm -hmm. can do a lot of that. So like, I don't fault yeah. him for not jumping into the river himself. And like, that's jumping like, into the burning bar. <laughs> well, somebody should have helped Jewel because he left that coffin by himself. Well, but, where was Daryl? Well, Daryl started the fire, so he had no interest in the... <laughs> what, thing, what was his reaction though, when his, his love of his life in a wooden box was in the barn? He was yeah. basically like, well, someone go get it. Well, yeah, that should have like, been the moment oh that he would gosh. risk that because because like, by hello. by that point, Cassius already has the broken leg, so he can't do it. And Darl started the fire, so he doesn't have the motive slash frame of mind to do it. So I think yeah, that would have been like a redemptive moment if Ants had run into the barn to help Jewel pick up one end. Like, sure. um, I in terms of the staging, like Jill, on your point about. The, yeah, that was like a very like ominous like repetition moment of the waving because like the, the novel ends on the line like everybody meet Mrs. Bunger and it just he introduces that he has he's chosen a new wife and then book is over like and so the fact that we lingered on that moment even longer or just letting it sink. You, watching a white man do that to me in 2020 is a big thing. Like that's. <laughs> I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to follow you right into the wonderful journey that you have spearheaded for us. Sounds yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like my answer to this question, if Mac, you were done with yours. I am so, done. I am done. I, I, sorry, I, Mac. I just like kind of. No, I'm enjoying this debate. I mean, I, no. and, like, what, actually, I do want to say one thing just in response to sure. the 2020 lens we're all going through. Yes. I do Which think, we yes, we do. We will get to that. Yeah, but yeah. But, 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 but not, not in that respect, but just the way mm -hmm. it feels like 2020 lensing these, this character and viewing him in 2020. We also have to remember we're adapting a character from the 1930s. So yes, we have our 2020 goggles on. Yeah, But at yeah, the same yeah. time, we have to respect that a character from 1930 is not going to act the same way we do in 1920. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. way I, 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 so we have, so, and I don't like the idea of everybody now being like, washing characters to fit the 2020 goggles when it's like characters from all different times and periods 
have their way of thinking. And if we all go with this modern hoopla route, then like we're going to lose part of the history that makes Ants the reason why the way he is and why we have moved away from him. Hopefully there's yes. less of these Ants in the world, but you can't have that unless you examine him in the past. Yeah. I agree with Mac. Yeah, yeah. So you need to have him be the asshole and unlikable person. Yeah. Of mm-hmm. the story because you and need we can that. think he's more of an asshole now than even we would have yeah. in the thirties because yeah. I mean, he is a product of his time and we thankfully hopefully as a society but who knows <laughs> but even like the book does not frame him in a positive light so even in the thirties he is viewed as this like asshole. <laughs> well, he's a cheap guy who didn't even bother to call had to have a hole dug for his wife. That's so there you go, asshole. there you go. Like, like, that's that's just the the <laughs> like that is a bit of an asshole move, but I do get why he wants to take the body. I do get that. I don't think so, he, I, I, I don't know in the book, Ryan, does he have the wife? Mrs. The new Mrs. Bunt's already like set up? Like, do we get any well, news out? No, she, he, like, he asks her to borrow. He borrows a spade from her, and then the next we hear from her, they're engaged or married. I don't know how the legal system worked in this time, but like, well, the, okay, the so fact, it wasn't like she was already that, off on the side. The fact right. that the pharmacist insists that Dewey Dell needs to get a marriage license with her ten dollars instead of abortion concoction, chances are, yeah, they're not married yet. At the end, there is a court procedure that needs to go through. But yes. anyway, side tangent anyway. of that. Um, yes. Yeah, so my answer to this question is kind of. A bit of a both, Jill and Mac, because I agree with Mac in the sense that I understand wanting to respect these wishes, especially when you're in grief. And, you know, it's the, I understand the kind of symbolism of granting this last wish. And for someone like Ants, I can kind of rationalize him rationalizing it as this is the one good thing I will do with my life. Which, like, whether or not he's thinking of it in those terms, I think, like, subtextually, that, like, I'm a bad husband, a bad father, bad farmer, bad, overall bad person. Uh, I appeal to Christianity to get people to do what I want them to do for me, but I'm not a good Christian myself. Um, So I can kind of understand that the least I can do is get Addie into the ground in the way she wants and speaking from a theater history perspective and you know Faulkner loved his classical Greeks I think of this as like a bit of an Antigone kind of the bad things will come if you do not respect the burial rites that said bad things come precisely because of the respecting of these burial rites and with like and I, I agree with you Mac that he couldn't have predicted everything bad that would happen on this journey, but he's given multiple outs, like ways out throughout the journey. Every stranger he meets says, oh, it's going to take you a long time. Oh no, the river's flooded. Oh no, your your mules are drowning. Like you're not going to make it. Just here, we got perfectly good land right here. You could just bury her right here. Um, And so when tallying up this kind of like material cost that this journey costs really everyone but him, like if he did really care for his family, he would have I think taken, he would recognize that the well-being of the living should be prioritized over the wishes of the dead. Uh, just to talk really quickly that, Ryan, because that was on my mind too. Like, I think that's just like an important, like even concept to deal with grief too. Like it is incredibly difficult to sort of like s- survive in a fog once those 
have passed and like me personally like losing my grandparents and just knowing um a couple family friends who have like lost children um it's very difficult to like come back down to earth for lack of a better phrase and really focus and be present with those around you and i think that is one thing to just i guess in a way that this character paves nicely um the idea that there is a lot of like perseveration on the dead that i think a lot of people deal with that like they forget to be present and like be there for those that are living and I think we see through the siblings, through his kids, there's a lot of turmoil, either mentally, biologically, physically, that are placed upon them that he just doesn't see. And again, like, I guess to kind of just maybe lighten up a little bit on my depiction of Ains, like, from a character point of view, that's, he does a good job of being that person that kind of has everyone else turned off. And he's still really thinking about the dead, mm -hmm. like Ryan was saying. Um, Grief will make you do crazy things. Yeah. Well, yeah. So this like, is kind of the part. Drowning in a sorry, river. I, yeah. So this is kind of the part of my answer to this, where I certainly, I, in the end, agree more with Jill. That if the question was just, and I wrote the question kind of deliberately in this way, but, but if the question was just, is this journey justified? to uh, have Addie's wishes granted? I would say maybe, yes. But because the question is, is Ants justified in putting his family through this journey? I don't think Ants is thoughtful enough about what he's doing and why to earn the benefit of the doubt of what we've been discussing about the good reasons to do it. Like, he does not care about Cash's leg. He doesn't care about Darl's sanity. He doesn't care about Jewel's horse. He steals Dewey Dell's money. And the second that Addie's in the ground, light switch brain, I've done my duty, and now I can get hitched with someone else. He is just not thinking symbolically enough about what he's doing for me to think that those symbolic reasons can be valid justifications for him. And if this was like a simple two-day journey where nothing went wrong, we could be like, well, what, what, what was the harm of it? But after everything that happens and the fact that he is given many opportunities to back out, to kind of compare him to another character from a great American novel, he's Ahab. He is so yeah. tunnel vision. I am going to do this thing that I want to do. This isn't killing something. This is respecting the dead, which is a little different, but... Yeah, he will not turn back, and it is that stubbornness that is his folly. Ains doesn't like his kids very much. Like, I think the only person he actually ever cared for in that family was Addie. That was it. Yeah. Like, I think every like I think that's why he he really doesn't care about his son breaking his leg or selling the horse or or or, or, or like his daughter like or like his son sanity because he's like never cared about him to begin with. Like, I got my one girl. And like once she's out of the way, like in the ground, it's like okay, next. Like I, I totally get it. Like it's like he, yeah, he, he, he's a very tunnel focused character, mm -hmm. which once again creates a lot of problems for everybody else around him. But once again, I can see it. Ed. <laughs> so when I first watched this, I had very little understanding of what was happening, so I didn't know. I didn't know where they were going, why they were heading there. 
I just knew that somebody was dying and that they were moving. <laughs> or someone was dead and they were moving. <laughs> <laughs> That's while I was watching it, okay? But now, now that I understand what's happening, <laughs> um, I, I agree with Jill and Mac and Ryan. I have my own little take on it as well. You guys bring up very good points, especially for, for what Jill said about the contrast of the character. And I guess it's played more towards the staging of it than maybe the book. But the contrast of the character not being a big enough contrast, I agree. I, even if I had known that he was taking the body from wherever they were to Jefferson, I, I, I had no, I was impartial to his character. I was impartial to the other characters. Like, I didn't understand what was happening. Of course, you know, uh, like the meta reasons as to why that is, but I, I had no, I had no real concerns for their well-beings or anything like that. I just was watching it and I thought, okay, he was going over there. So I, I agree that there wasn't a strong contrast with the, with his character. If we're looking at it from the story, I think psychologically, and if I was in that situation. Hell no, you're not justified <laughs> taking me on this journey. I mean, if I was putting myself in their shoes, if I were to put myself in their shoes, it's like, you're not taking me on this nine day journey for what I guess was supposed to be less than nine days to go bury a body that's rotting in its casket. <laughs> it's like, no way. But if we are looking at it artistically, as I think, you know, that's the, that's the purpose, uh, what is what kind of statement does that make? This person who doesn't care but honors his wife's wishes, and I really like what Ryan said about respecting rituals, but then the consequences of rituals. So, if that was an angle they were going for, or if that's an angle that the book was going for, then I think, wow, it's really that is interesting. And I don't think this needs to be a likable character for him to teach or enlighten the audience about something. And I I agree with Mac where. I, I think I, I think just because this character is an ass through and through and his and his, like his actions are very deplorable doesn't mean that he shouldn't be staged that this type of person shouldn't be staged. I just think if there was a I, but I agree with Jill I think if there was a stronger contrast it would justify the staging way more. Yeah. 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 So that's my answer to that. <laughs> very good. Nice amalgamation, Ed. <laughs> nice cherry picking of the best lines. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out! All right, <laughs> let's head into the final question of the night or day, afternoon, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but we're heading into the final question, which is, what might this story have to say to us experiencing it in the 21st century? Be that live in 2013 when this was originally performed, or online viewing in 2020. Ryan, I see you smirking, so I think you should go first. I, my, I'm smirking because I know that my answer for this one is kind of boring, and <laughs> I, I kind of hope other people bring more interesting answers to this. But I'll go first if you want. Sure. Um, yeah, set the bar low. Um, to me, yeah, this goes back to the question Jill brought up earlier, where like, why this book, like the she was framing it you were framing it Jill specifically in the white like you have this Lecoq company why pick this book to frame it but like I think it's just kind of just the general question of adaptation dramaturgy 
in general of why this source, why do it as theater, why do it now? Those are like the big kind of three questions. And there isn't always a good answer to that because sometimes an artistic director decided and paid a playwright to write it. And, you know, we don't have time to be thoughtful about it. They thought it would sell tickets because it's a recognizable name. Um, but I think I'm struggling to see parallels with this story, the 30s and the today. I'm, I'm sure they exist and I'd love to hear some of you bring them up. <laughs> but I don't, personally, I don't fault it for me not grasping those. Well, one, because that's just a me, and if you all have better reasons for Ansel's Trump or whatever, like, oh, I guess it does. But in 2013, we were just second year into, or just first year into the second Obama administration. So think about this as maybe we can connect Trump stuff to it today, but think about the arc of how we got here. Um, but what I kind of want to say, just like, again, in its favor, because I it's no secret that I'm very positive on this production, is you almost don't need that specific why this source, why now question with this when you have a very good answer, I think, for the why theater. And that is to do this beautiful visual imagery that it could have been this book, it could have been another book, but the book gives us that entrance way into doing that. And when I left the theater in 2014, I wasn't thinking, ah, yes, Faulkner is still relevant because Obama <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I What stuck with me are those images and it's just this experience of the pure theater of it. And these appeals to the imagination, that's what lingers, that's what touched me. And that's what I enjoy so much revisiting now all these years later. Um, so, again, excited to hear if other people have good, interesting answers for how this is, like, hashtag relevant today. Mm -hmm. But I kind of think it's okay if it's not. Uh, Ed? So, I I agree with Ryan to a certain extent. I, I do find it a bit difficult to try and draw a parallel. Not that you can't draw a parallel, but I, don't, I think the parallel shouldn't be, shouldn't be something political. I think... I think even in the writing of the story, that connecting politics to it will be a more of an imposition of ideas as opposed to something cohesive with the play itself. Not that the play is absent of any uh, political problems, that it's completely absent of it, but that that's not, that, that wouldn't be the heart of their stories, of their pieces, uh, of their journey. I feel you could go a route where, all right, there is definitely a power struggle. All of them are of sound, well, <laughs> except for Darl, sound mind and body. <laughs> but they, they, they each have their own autonomy, but they choose to stay and listen to their father, which is, I mean, despite the resistance, they, they go along with whatever he says, and he's the, Anus is the most, a ants. <laughs> Subconsciously. Oh my god. <laughs> ants is the, is the most unchanging character out of all of them. And I think that contributes to the problem of this character. So it kind of makes me wonder it's, was Anz the focal point? Uh, or definitely this, this force, maybe not the focal point, but definitely this force to really, to really learn from. What it could be is that power which can be translated to any society, 
any point in time, like the power a family head holds or what one is willing to do for the dead or or the impressionable minds of children or the, I guess, master slave, whatever. I think you can go those routes. I do find it hard to draw a parallel to today. I think I think you could probably speak. I think you could probably draw something more towards a universal sort of timeless uh, place for, I guess, human existence within human existence. But something as specific as today, I don't. I'm not sure. Jill. So to piggyback right off that, and I think because I hear what you're saying, Ed, of yeah, that it doesn't necessarily need to be political or should be political but i think something that's really important to remember right now being uh you know being theater makers theater artists who literally cannot do our craft and i think maybe this is just a personal preference or a personal sort of like foreshadowing but i think a lot of people agree with this too is that when when we are able to kind of go back on stages and we are able to like uh display texts i think just inevitably like art is going to be more political because of the state of the way that the world is in the leaders that we are dealing with the um socio uh like um socio-psychological concepts that we're dealing with um so i think like what i i mean I, i did have on the 2020 goggles a lot through talking of this and i think a lot of it is coming from just like um frustration and and this and and coming it's it's interesting it's interesting watching that this this piece was from 2013 a lot of the Shakespeare stuff we reviewed was also from around that time period too and I had the same sort of frustration and it's it, it's a frustration out of like it's not I guess it's, it's a frustration but a realization of how different um putting up pieces really was from like six years ago like and thinking of it that way right and it's like not everything i go to see now is politically driven but there there's some sort of tone or some sort of like message that can be taken from that and that might not be like implicated um to be so maybe that's just like my own brain extracting and, and thinking that art art is more political now but there's certain concepts that are just implemented. Like I said, I even saw this in like our 2012, 2013, 2014 Shakespeare productions we had to review. There's certain um, things that are integrated in um, in those productions that like kind of just made it like a crisp package and here you go. But there's like moments where I'm looking back and it's like, how how is that not a thing? Like how how was that how was that not augmented? Because for me, I, I want to see this again. But I, it needs to be almost like the, the farce of it or like the breaking down of the fourth wall that these characters do. Breaking the fourth wall in 2020 is vastly different from breaking the fourth wall in 2013. Like there's a different thing that comes with it and it may not be political. It might just be like a more of a mm-hmm. thing to do or, or a concept that's not really avant-garde because it's been done for like X amount of years and, it, and it's, it's been layered in through other productions. Um I just, I, it's just, it's fascinating to think that only like six, seven years ago, um, the craft of, of like the example I just used of breaking the fourth wall is so different if you were to see a production now than 2013 
quite possibly because maybe it's more politically implemented. But even just, I even just think the structure of attacking or placing a piece on stage is different. And I don't, I don't know why necessarily. Like, it's only been six, seven years. Now, mind you, like, the only thing I can say is because I think there has been more use of art for political sake that, like, maybe there is that bleed of that double, double watching of, like, oh, I'm watching this character break the fourth wall in that speech, but, like, they're actually politically socially saying this as well um that's the only really like reason why it's just it's funny that i've i've gleaned that from like these 2013 2014 2012 productions that we reviewed at seeing like this is a package that exists in this year and then i'm like well why like why did we do faulkner's as i lay dying in 2013 is it just because it's an example of like you know ains being this like head of the household possible like uh what does that do you know them sort of being subservient to him what does that do but like i don't really see like we're like we're talking like i can see this in 2020 in being like ains is a trump as character in being like the siblings and the kids are a diverse um group troop of actors like either that be racially and or gender gender bending too like i can see that like being done whereas like I don't see like an all white cast with like this, the concept of being like head of the household. Like why, why, why is that on our stage? Like, why is that? I guess it's just like, it's a, it's a show to watch. It's something to like get that, like that story. But I'm like, why, why, why are we, when I think it's, I don't know, I'm going on like a rant now of what theater's going to look like but i just if this production with the same troupe and like same sort of vibe was put on our stage next year i wouldn't go see it because that's that's not that's not the stories that i want to see on stage like i think i think especially post-pandemic as like theater makers like we have a duty of taking these texts and taking these old texts absolutely i don't think we should eradicate like anything and i say this in our shakespeare chats too but like there has to and it's unfortunate because as artists, like we want to just do art for art's sake sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I think now, like our audience and like the world at large, they aren't, they don't think our career exists enough to like come back, to be honest. Like a lot of people outside of the theater world are thinking like, well, what's your next career choice? Because theater is no longer a thing. But I think in order to like, unfortunately, we're going to have to pack a bigger punch of like, well, theater is a thing. And look at this text that we've just discussed, like works so much better as staged versus movie. So shut off your streaming systems, shut down your computers. So already we're proving that this deserves to be on stage, but we are going to have to pack an extra punch too of like why this particular story, you know, adapted by a white man needs to be on the stage now. Like, and again, being theater makers and artists it's unfortunate that we are gonna have to like it's unfortunate but fortunate in in the same vein of like taking i guess i'm i'm saying unfortunate in a sense of like proving to people outside of the arts industry that we exist that's the unfortunate part of it the fortunate part though i think is that showing that not only do we exist but we know how to maneuver and take these texts and make them relevant 
to and universal to every single person, regardless of of um, status, of race, of gender. Um, I, s- I see what you're saying. Yeah. Sorry, and I'm going on like a really long. <laughs> no, no, no. I see what I'm you're saying. Like, and, and stop yeah. me if I if I if I misquote you or anything like that. But let's say that we do take this piece and put it in, and we put it on for the times for 2020, and that we want it to be relevant. And that we find that something like the example that you gave where Ains is Trump and the, yeah. his children are are the oppressed under mm-hmm. Trump regime. It wouldn't be universal mm-hmm. because we wouldn't Trump supporters wouldn't want to go see it. And that's why I think having something a bit more universal like, mm-hmm. hey, this is a tyrannical figure these are oppressors right having that more open i guess symbolic ideology put on the stage would be more open to people who are seeing theater as this i guess crap that shouldn't come back right it would involve it would invite more people who are wanting oh i want to see uh i want to learn about this or I want to see this production because they do a really good job of having this power struggle as opposed to having this imposed political like, yeah like the the only people who are going to go see it are the people who think alike support that yeah yeah support that right and so if you want to yeah exactly so if you want to I, I I hear what you're saying yeah but I do wholeheartedly believe that for a piece like this it if if a if a political statement, especially a 2020 political statement, was needed to be made, I don't think everybody would want to go see that. And I yeah. think the goal of theater is to always have everybody want to come and see that, whether they support people that we don't support or or not. So that's mm-hmm. that's that's my take on on the that's my thought process towards like mm-hmm. having having some political. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that too. Because I think it is very important um, to to like neglect, for example, you're using like Trump supporters. Like absolutely, yeah. like you'd want to build them into. Um, so yeah, like maybe conceptually wise, keep it more like tyrants yeah. and oppressors versus like literally throwing a toupee on Ains's character. Yeah. <laughs> Um, sorry, that's lunch, but hello. Um, but I do think though that like this, this production could, could dabble with more diversity across the, the, the stage. I think you could even take this play just from my initial watching of it. I think you could take this play and cast everyone as. Yeah, just, yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's no, there's no, there's no, they don't have to be white. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it really doesn't have to be white. You can make the whole family like Asian, black whatever yeah like yeah like I, uh, there's no race that's particular to the family yeah so but, i think it'd be a, a really interesting piece to see in 2020 i feel like that would yeah. be for for it to be entirely black i feel i feel like that would be what would happen most likely words yeah i mean i'll say tackling this question i came at it from a thematic mm-hmm. uh perspective versus like a political perspective so, I mean, for me, like in a 2013 lens, the reason why I think you would want to do this story is, like, speaking historically at that time, we were coming out of the Great Recession. We were rebuilding from that 2008 downturn. 
And just like the Greats of Wrath, once again, it's these epic stories of perseverance and endurance through the toughest of shit that you've got to get through. That's what these two stories are. So for me, I'm like, you could easily stage this in 2013 as like a story of this family setting out on the road and they got a lot of shit thrown at them. Whether it's by Ains's hands or not, like that's an entirely different thing, but it's that thing of this family's persevering journey to get to point B. And I think in 2013, that, that was a message we all were really looking for. Like around the same time, Stratford did Grapes of Wrath. Like it's that thing of perseverance, endurance, to get to the next point and, and like survive. Like I think, like I, 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 do they all come out happily in the end? No, but a lot of people came out of that recession. Yeah, they survived it, but they weren't happy. A lot of them had lost their homes, lost their jobs, and were having to rebuild. This family's lost their matriarch. One guy's probably like one guy's off in the insane asylum. Other guy's probably gonna have his leg amputated. Like we all come out with battle scars. But like for me, like it was that story of endurance versus anything else. See, Americana, I, go get them. I have to disagree with that, Mac. Actually, Ooh. because if it ended. On a hopeful note, I would agree with you. Grapes of Wrath isn't it on a hopeful note. Grapes of Wrath does. I didn't see the Strapper production, but the book ends on one of the most bizarre hopeful notes in all of world literature, probably. Um, I, I don't want to spoil, but also change our rating on this video by describing it. But <laughs> um, those who've read the book know what I'm talking about. Um, I, I don't know what the Strapper production did. I'm sorry, I didn't see it. But, um, it ends with Rosa Sharon and breastfeeding a man. Okay, yes, I didn't know what we were allowed to say that aloud. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a thing. Yeah. It's not. It's a, it's, it's but, it, but that word. is that is the hopeful note of uh, take this. You know, these people who have it been be devastated. I thought more it's just like endurance. Like family is just trying to survive the flood at the end. Well, it's the family. It's the coming back together as a family is what that moment at least in the book kind of symbolizes is that turning mother child dynamic kind of on its head and finding these ties as a kind of gesture towards collective unity and how we'll working together make our way to the other side as i lay dying doesn't end with that kind of note it ends with ants obliviously happy that he's done his job and can now move on with his life and the rest of his family suffering the scars of it. If we want to talk 2013 politics and speaking of the re recession. I wasn't and, going for politics. I was well, going I, for thematic endurance. But since you mentioned 2013 and like well, the, the recession, recession. was Yes, absolutely. Like it's there. I, like you were rebuilding from that moment in history. Maybe Ants' Bush in that 2013 moment. He's done his job. He's out of there. He's happy with what he's done. And everyone else kind of just has to deal with it. And mm -hmm. it doesn't look so helpful for them in that moment well i mean look at where we are I, I mean i mean getting out of the recession we did a lot of things that we probably shouldn't have like refilling the banks like not doing it the right way but we persevered yeah we got but to this, the other side we grew some, the economy something about as i lay dying both on page and stage and screen does not come with that hopeful note to me it really i don't think be... perseverance is a hopeful note i think i think it's really like survive get to the other side and move forward okay see i think the language per of perseverance implies hope more so than survival implies okay, just maybe endurance then endurance endurance yeah this is a story of endurance yeah i That's would say i could see in 2013 though. i would argue this is a story of failed 
perseverance, that wanting to persevere at great cost and everyone except for ants comes out worse than they were when they started. It's and, definitely it's definitely a story where you're learning on uh, along the journey as opposed to learning from the end. Yes. Yeah. Which is why I prefer the title As I Lay Dying to take me back to Jefferson because that implies the destination kind of as like the goal when it's literally the laying dying, which is not something that just Addie does. They are all dying through this journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And yeah, and then I will say I'll pause your film because I know, Ed, you got to get going at three. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I will say for 2020 Lens, I, I, I viewed it as a very humbling um story where it's like you think your life is shit being stuck inside and having to wear a mask when you go out for a walk try living through what these people had to live through Mm. broken leg living with a corpse like all this like dad's an asshole all this (laughs) hey listen we're already past the (laughs) i'm going for it um but like yeah like it was a very humbling kind of thing where it's like oh yeah i thought my life was rough (laughs) <laughs> watch what they have to go and deal with like and then also i think also like especially in 2020 just watching once again the world that we're living in right now that is very political we are seeing a lot of clashes going on between people like it like i saw this very much as like an almost intergenerational struggle where the young ones are trying to break away and forge their path but you have older generation that still holds the power mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like watching these last two weeks of the two different conventions it will like, like a lot of times it was the younger generation being hope and optimism unity like let's move forward a little bit more to the left liberal you have the older generation a little bit more conservative a little bit more to the right and it's this yeah. smashing of loggerheads with the, these fathers and sons so that's those are the two things humbling that thank god i'm having to live through what they're living through and intergenerational struggle those are my yep. two yep. yep those are both valid from 2020 yeah and sure. endurance from 2013 not perseverance, endurance. Okay, sure. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Ryan, or no, you already went. Jill, you went. Oh, yeah, wow, we're, we're done. Thank you all so much for tuning in for our post-Stradford uh, first review. We have a lot more going forward. Uh, I can announce now we'll be using the platform Broadway HD to get our materials. So if you do want to follow along and watch the productions we will be talking about, go for Broadway HD. It's like 12 bucks a month Canadian, eight bucks a month American for any of our American friends who are watching. Uh, it's a really great channel. I know Ryan's like playing the yeah. next six months of our reviews because he's like gone through the entire catalog and uh, found some good I'm ones. I'm enjoying having it, yes. <laughs> yes. So definitely check out Hashtag Broadway. not sponsored. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, we're not sponsored. <laughs> but I mean, Broadway HD, if you do want to sponsor us, we want to find We are here. Because we will be using your platform. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, Broadway HD uh, is, is, is where we will be training next for our uh, review material. We have more coming up in the very near future. Uh, but in the meantime, Jill, where can they find you? Yes, uh, you can find me at my artist Instagram account uh, at jillian.robinson96. You can see some upcoming projects, some singing clips, all that fun stuff. Great. Yep. Ed? You can find me on Instagram at Edmund underscore Clark underscore official. Come and see what else I've been doing. Right now I have a few things in the works, so I'll be posting more soon, but yeah. Wonderful. Ryan, give us your classic yeah. sign off. Yeah, sorry, I'm not social media guy. You can't find me there. I'd much rather you send that love to Cup of Hemlock since 
on the one social media I do actually use. I mostly just share Cup of Hemlock stuff anyway. If you want, you can follow Sad Ibsen Theater on all socials, but all of those accounts are functionally dead, much like the company that they represent. <laughs> Ryan, you're so self-deprecating. Oh my god. The one has to be. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, you can find me on all social media platforms at Mackenzie Horner. Uh, you can uh, look at look for my podcast before the downbeat. We just released our episode all about Sweeney Todd, uh, so lots of fun there. Uh, stay tuned September 9th for The Man of Destiny, featuring Ed as Napoleon, myself as Lieutenant, and Joe being our wonderful stage manager. And Ryan is the one who created the script for us. Well, so, Shaw created it. I just dramaturged it, but yes, Ryan <laughs> worked with Shaw. Yes, exactly. my my good friend Shaw and I sat down and I'm like, okay, listen, George, <laughs> does this need George. to be about Napoleon? <laughs> exactly. So yeah, we all played a part in this upcoming poetry reading. Stay tuned for that. End of uh, uh mid September, we have our first roundtable discussion coming out about Shakespeare and gender. Uh, that Jill will be hosting. I will be a panelist on as well, along with many other great people and voices will be heard as well. Uh, and then, yeah, stay tuned for more. We have more polished readings in the uh, in the works. Uh, same with more reviews. So lots more coming your way in the very near future. In the meantime, would... everybody, thank you. Have a great day. And let's All go off and bury a corpse. Yep. Bye! Cheers! <laughs> <laughs>